Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina and it's Holy Week or the end of Holy Week. And as we know, the Philippines has had a long tradition of Holy Week practices. Churches are often full of people and vendors are outside these churches in order to sell religious things. We also have some questionable practices such as public penitentia, which is the act of publicly whipping yourself in order to ask for forgiveness from God, um, self-flagellation as a lot of people call it, and we also have things like Senacolo and Pabasa. However, IATF guidelines dated March 21 banned all kinds of mass gatherings from March 22 to April 4. And this period covers the entirety of Holy Week, which includes Palm Sunday all the way to Easter Sunday. This rule, however, allows baptisms, weddings, and funeral services, but this is going to be limited to 10-person gatherings only. Yeah, the Archdiocese of Manila decided last Tuesday, so March 23, to defy, basically, the Philippine government's ban on religious gatherings in Metro Manila. They said, we will have our religious worship within 10% of our maximum church capacity. So the Manila Archdiocese, Pabilio, said on Radio Veritas, basically, the government is wrong. We should not follow such guidelines. These guidelines lack consultations, and it breaks the separation of church and state. In Metro Manila, the bishops of Navaliches and Cubao, which covers the entirety of Quezon City, and the bishop of Pasig, covering Pasig, Taguig, and Pateros, decided, however, to cancel religious gatherings in the area, even before the government banned religious gatherings. So they basically complied, but not even as a direct result of the government enforcement. So this brings up a lot of debatable conversations. Does the government have the right to limit activities of the church? Is the church justified in its refusal to follow? Who are they accountable to? Does the individual right to religion and choice get to overturn government mandates? And is it principally consistent with the rest of government action? So for this episode of Debatable, we'll talk about all those issues to give you a better understanding of how religions have been affected by the pandemic and possibly shed some light on the specific issues and tensions that exist right now between the government and these religious institutions. So I guess the first part of this would be understanding the separation of church and state, because as stated, for example, by Roque, defiance of an IATF resolution is not covered by separation of church and state. What is covered is the freedom to believe and the freedom not to endorse a religion. So Roque said this during a news briefing and he added, but in the exercise of police powers, we can order actually the government close and wag sana dumating doon. Um, this was a warning basically to the archdiocese about defiance. I'm sorry, did you mean order the government closed or or the government will order the churches to be closed? Oh, sorry. The, the government will order the churches closed. Okay. So I, I think that we can start this discussion by asking like, what even is a separation of church and state? I already talked about this a little bit in our religion episode a really long time ago. But in principle, separation of church and state is basically a delineation of boundaries. So you put up a fence because strong fences make good neighbors. So there are things that are exclusive to the state, like, you know, managing the economy, welfare, etc. There are also things that are exclusive to religion, spirituality and whatnot. So basically, the separation of church and state means that the state can't tell the religion how to properly mediate between a citizen and God. Religion can't tell the state how to run the economy. Uh, Justice Isagani Cruz used this phrase, render unto Caesar 
things that are Caesar's and unto God, the things that are God's. So basically, there are functions that are exclusively to government. Only the government should be able to do that. There are functions that are exclusively to religion. Only religion should do that. In our constitution, there are two religion clauses, both in Section 5 of the Bill of Rights or Article 3. The relevant portion says, no law shall be made respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So there are two clauses there. The first one is the non-establishment clause. The second is the free exercise clause. The first one, uh, the one that Roque was saying when he was saying that the freedom not to endorse a religion, that's not really a freedom. It's the opposite of a freedom. It's basically restricting the state from creating a state religion. So you can't have a policy that prefers one religion over another. You also can't have a policy preferring non-religion, so like atheism over religion. Uh, the second one is the free exercise clause, which is basically you can't make a policy that unduly limits the ability of people to freely exercise their religious beliefs. So this issue is about the free exercise clause. It looks like from you know just the text of Section 5 of the Constitution that you should never be able to restrict religious freedom. But as you can tell, there are a lot of bad things that you can do in the name of religious belief that we should not stand for. So we've kind of evolved and said that when we're interpreting this, the court said that free exercise actually means two concepts. The freedom to believe, which is unlimited. You can believe whatever the hell you want. And the freedom to act, which can be limited. So you can believe that your religion commands you to hate a certain group of people. You can believe that your religion doesn't want you to stay at home, but you can't necessarily act on your beliefs. But in order for the state to validly restrict a religious action, so not belief, an action, it must be done to achieve a compelling state interest. And it should be in accordance with something called the doctrine of benevolent neutrality. So benevolent neutrality, it's a kind of attitude towards the separation of church and state. There are many different kinds. I talked about this before. I just want to repeat that separation of church and state in the Philippines is a benevolent neutrality. When secularism, the separation of church and state, was first thought of by Thomas Jefferson. It was based on the idea that, look, we saw how religious influence messed up Europe. We should try to protect the state from religion in the United States of America. But when the idea was imported from America to the Philippines, we actually said, no, it's not about protecting the state from religion. On the contrary, it's about protecting religion from the state. So they called this benevolent neutrality because essentially the state should be neutral towards religion so as not to establish a state religion, but it should also try to accommodate religious exercise to the greatest extent possible within constitutional limits. So that's why we even have Holy Week. That's the reason why we are able to you know, not go to school during Holy Week. It's to accommodate religious exercise. And that's why we grant religious exceptions in general or exemptions in general. There was a case where school kids were kicked out of school because they refused to salute the flag during flag assembly because they weren't nationalistic enough. The court said, well, this is a sincerely held religious belief, so we should exempt them. So religious belief actually allows people in general to be exempted from facially neutral law. So on the contrary to what Harry Rocke said, I think defiance of an IATF resolution hypothetically can be a part of religious freedom. Because historically, religious freedom can be used to exempt a person from following a law that seems to be neutral on its face. 
So, does that mean that we should just go to church? Again, there's nuance here. Because the general rule is respect religious freedom, even if it would accept sincere believers from following certain laws. The exception to this is that religious freedom can be restricted if there's a compelling state interest that can override that right to free exercise of religion. So according to Professor Hilby, the test, the compelling state interest test, has three parts. Number one, was a person's religious freedom burdened? Number two, was this religious freedom sincerely held? So was it a sincerely held religious belief? Like they're not just making stuff up to get out of class. And third, was the interest of the state so compelling as to override the claim? And assuming that it was so compelling, was the interest attained or achieved with the least intrusive means possible? So the real question here is, was the compelling state interest of fighting the pandemic attained with the least intrusive means possible? And, you know, I can't say whether it is because that might be construed as me giving a legal opinion, which is something I'm not really allowed to do. So far, I've just been stating what cases say and like to the best of my knowledge, but this might be completely different if I say, well, actually, this is not fulfilling the compelling state interest test. I will say this though. There are three ways that you can debate this. Number one, was this the least intrusive means? Number two, is the compelling interest test even correct? Because remember, in debates where knowledge about the law could be relevant, another question we can ask is, should the law change? And three, does the pandemic count as something important enough to override religious freedom in the first place? So I will answer these things because I'm not bound by the same restrictions Kyle is. So this is obviously not a legal opinion as well. But even if it was misconstrued in that way, I don't plan on taking the bar. So it's fine, I guess. Or is it fine, Kyle, even if I don't plan to take the bar? Or are there punishments if someone gives a legal opinion? As far as I know, there aren't. But there might be in the future. There, there actually might be in the future. Because we already do that for doctors. Like if people pretend to be doctors, they can get fined or jailed. But I, to my knowledge, there isn't... This is legal advice. To my knowledge, I don't... From my personal research, I haven't found a similar provision of law when it comes to pretending to be a lawyer. But like, well, I'm just as pretending. a disclaimer... Yeah, yeah just as a disclaimer... Neither of us are lawyers. None of this is legal advice. None of this is, you know, intended to be considered practice of law. Yeah. So anyway, on your first question on was this the least intrusive means possible, I would say it was the least intrusive way, right? Putting a ban on mass gatherings is not as intrusive as it could have been. There could have been stricter ways the government could have stopped Holy Week altogether. And alternatives exist, I would say. And as someone who grew up in a religious school, we were taught that physical presence was not the only way you're able to practice your religious beliefs, right? So you can do it in your own personal space at home. And there are, all, there are alternatives now that make it so much easier for you to actually practice religion. You can do it through the internet or at home, even through TV and radio shows, right? My, The, one, the person I live with loves watching radio programs about religious gatherings. And I think that counts as attending mass when they're not able to during the pandemic. So I think it's the least intrusive way. On your second question, is there compelling interest or is this test even correct? I would say I think the standards are rather fair. 
it's difficult to balance, th balance things as they are. So doing things in the least intrusive means possible seems to be the right way to go about things. However, though, I personally believe there's, an, there's a, a conflict or a bit of a tension when it comes to the word intrusion since that word can be highly subjective per individual. And what may be intrusive to some may not be intrusive to others. And I also think that's where the debate lies, right? Because some people think that this law or this restriction on mass gatherings is not intrusive, but others would argue that it really stops people from their own religious practice and stops them from like fulfilling their lifestyle to the greatest degree. On the third question, um, this is where the subjectivity comes in. And the best way to address this would probably be to weigh the pandemic to the feelings of people on the ground re regarding religious practice and re religious beliefs. So this is where we transition now to the next part of the discussion. Understanding the reasons why religions and churches want to defy this restriction in the first place. And I would say there's a few key reasons from my understanding and from my research as to why people would want to still attend mass gatherings despite all of the COVID happening around them. And I, the first one and most important one is probably about religious identity. Because on a few levels, right, people genuinely feel bad if they're unable to uphold certain traditions for themselves. This is why yearly we practice making sacrifices for Holy Week, despite the fact that there's no real rule that says we have to, right? It's just something recommended by the church and something that we've been practicing all our lives. And this is also why we have extreme forms of penance, which is a whole different debate altogether, especially the point on self-flagellation. But we're going to tackle that a little bit because I think that's an interesting discussion, right? And recently, just on Good Friday, 10 people still practice penitentia in Tondo. And this was done despite the fact that the church already disapproved of this practice. So Kyle, what do you think of this general practice in society? In general, I think it's quite fascinating. Um, yeah, I'm just fascinated by it because I remember watching... I've only watched the penitentia once, just once my entire life. I was staying at my grandmother's place years before I was a kid. Um, and I didn't even know it was the Holy Week until I saw people whipping themselves and I saw like blood dripping down from their backs. And I was like, why would people do this? Um, and that's where it was explained to me that they're doing this to show penance or like ask for forgiveness. But that never really, you know, stuck with me. I don't think that you should necessarily make yourself suffer just in order to ask for forgiveness. And that's the reason why, like, I, I think there's a cultural thing here. Like, if, if you notice that a lot of people, when they say sorry, they intentionally try to hurt themselves, not just, like, physically, but also emotionally. They, um, they talk really badly about themselves. And I remember you were telling me that that seems kind of abusive because you're trying to make it all about your own suffering, you know, instead of actually solving the issue. Um, so I don't, I don't really agree with the principle behind penitentia. But as to people's rights, I think that normally people do have the right to do that to themselves. I don't think that you know, people can necess that 
the state can necessarily stop you from doing that in my opinion because like you're not really harming other people and if it's something that you're really sincere about then i think normally you should be able to do that like i don't know if it's really part of your religious belief and you find comfort on a religious level when you do something like that even if i don't necessarily agree with it i think that people have the right to do that but again in the covid context i'm not really sure if that's necessarily safe not just for the people who are doing the penitential but also to the people that they're going to interact with if they're going to go out that might be considered a gathering that's not acceptable by the iatf so i i don't know i don't know it's it's not it's not as black and white to me as for other people because i i think for other people they just don't like the practice at all they don't think that you should ever do it or that there is ever any benefit to it i personally see the benefit that's why i can't really decide if that's something i should just like outright ban but like hypothetically if they were following like proper procedures or like doing social distancing while they were doing the penitentia i don't i don't necessarily see the problem with that Yeah, I would say it's also a very gray area issue because of the fact that, I mean, the church has already disapproved of it, but they can't necessarily stop their followers from doing something based on what they've seen, like, historically being done, as well as what the Bible has said is a way to gain, like, or to ask for forgiveness. I would say, personally, however, it's not a good it's not a good practice in in that it it tells people that you need to go to extremes to ask for forgiveness when the bible already in itself and this is arguing religion with religion when the bible already says that asking for forgiveness through confession should be something that's enough right and that's why we have confessional um like stuff all the time like you're recommended to do it once a month right or once every two weeks or once every week even if you're capable and that's the reason that exists so going to this extreme kind of contradicts the very same bible that you say you are upholding so there's a bit of a tension i feel i understand the religious side of it but to argue using religion as well i still do not get it And this was a discussion I've had in high school as well as grade school because I was that kid that would always ask, like, why does this practice happen? Or why do we practice the way that we do? And apparently, it's a very Filipino thing, right? For some reason, we have been ingrained to say or to think that we must suffer to a great extent to be able to be children of God. Um, which is also a bad mindset. I'm just going to connect this a little bit to politics because that mindset has also justified a lot of the government's inadequacies because it would say that, you know, being poor, uh, you're going to be blessed when you go to heaven or suffering now will give you blessings in the future. And I feel like that's a dangerous mindset to have as a person, as a citizen, as well as someone who's practicing religion. So that's just my personal stance. But I understand why people do it. I just think that we need to transition out of it eventually. Yeah, although you can... First of all, that is also the criticism against Mother Teresa, right? That she has this idea that suffering is very spiritual and sacred. 
And the effect of that was she had a lot of money that was like donated to her and her organization, but she didn't really use it to alleviate suffering because she felt that, you know, suffering was something that could bring a person to heaven. So that that's not just a Filipino kind of criticism, although the extreme version of this and how normalized it is um, might be something that's unique to the Filipino um, citizenry. But if we're going to take a stronger stance, because we're very, we're very soft in our stance so far. True. Um, let let's try to go hardline and say no. This is just not good. I think a strong argument for saying that we shouldn't let people have these kinds of mass gatherings, even in the name of religious freedom, is that there are lots of alternatives that might exist. So you have online church services. Like, why can those things not be enough for people on the ground? Because you can say that, why do you have to go to your physical church, actually hold hands with people? You know, it might be just 10% capacity, but that is still, you know, an added risk that you did not need to incur. But on the other hand, oh my gosh, the, the flip-flopping talaga that we have to do because we're debaters. On the other hand, You can say that actually it's built on a false premise. The false premise that these are legitimate alternatives. But from the point of view of the believer, there is no such alternative. That might be something that makes us ask, these things might not be enough for people on the ground. So there might be some deep connection to religious spaces, like physical religious spaces that cannot be um, replicated at home, right? there might be a sense of tradition that lends legitimacy to certain actions. So, for example, the, like if you're going to kneel um, during Mass, it might feel differently or more solemn if you're kneeling um, in church as opposed to just kneeling you know, at home for no reason. And like your children will look at you like, Nanay, what are you doing? And then she be like, oh, it's Sunday or it's Thursday. I have to pray today. Oh, sorry, I'm just bringing something from home to this discussion. And also, um, Bishop Ruel Marigza uh, was the General Secretary of the National Council of Churches in the Philippines, the NCCP. They actually said, in, in anxious times, more than the strict and unjust and inconsistent imposition of orders from the government, What is constant is the spiritual needs of people and that churches are able to consistently give that. So churches, religious services, they provide help consistently by providing a spiritual support system, you know, a boost in morale. It uh, allegedly, according to um, the good bishop, reduces psychological stress, you know, good mental health. Those kinds of things. So there might be reasons why they don't think there are alternatives. But the problem with this argument, in my opinion, is that it can be used to justify any form of exception from the IATF guidelines. And this is a problem. And it has been used before, right? Saying that we need it for psychological stress relief or good mental health. And personally, I don't think it's a very persuasive argument. 
Though I do understand that religion may be more to some people than the rest, so I'm not going to judge if you are someone who truly and genuinely needs religion in order to function in your everyday life, just like someone who needs therapy, right? Or someone who needs, like, medicine. Because there are people that genuinely see religion in that fashion. But to go hardline, um, <laughs> as a debater, if I really had to go against this, I would say that, once again, um, your needs need to come second compared to the needs of society, right? The fact that COVID is not just a personal issue, but a societal issue, and you risking your own life and the lives of others should not be something we take lightly and should not mean that you should be exempted from it. I might take the opposite view for now. I might take the opposite view because especially right now, like we're a year into this. And the only reason why we have such strict guidelines right now is because of the catastrophic failure of government. So you're punishing believers even more for things that are absolutely not their fault. Or like, I'm assuming that it's not their fault for now. Or if there is some fault, certainly the fault is heavier on the government side. So I, I would say that like, you can't really blame them because like, if you have to go out like right now after a year in lockdown in order to find work or something like that, that is something that you might need to do that might be necessary for you if you don't want to, you know, suffer more, you know? So I I think that there are some times that even if your actions might harm more people, there might be instances where you are forced to do that. Um, And in the same way that we can understand if you're forced to leave your home, um, in contravention of IATF guidelines in order to get food or some other necessities, who are we to decide that religion is not a necessity for these people? Siguro in in the earlier parts of the pandemic, we can understand, like, just hold on, just wait. But right now, it's it's been more than a year already and things have just gotten worse. If people do not trust the government anymore and they're more willing to trust God to bring order to their lives, I think that's a legitimate thing for them to want to do. But on the other hand, you can kind of see that the church has certain incentives to uphold physical traditions. So there might be a disincentive for them to to use these alternatives like online services. So, you know, like catering to devotees, uh, adherence to the will of God, which is like to meet every Sunday, gather in his name, worship without fail, those kinds of commandment level things. Those are sort of incentives to uphold physical traditions because the church isn't just a collection of, you know, individuals working on their own. For many people, the draw to religion is the fact that you are part of a community. So you can't really be satisfied with just practicing alone in your home. It really hits different when you see or when you foster that kind of community. So there is an incentive to uphold physical traditions, to uphold that sense of physical belongingness to a certain community. There's also this argument that I've read. Not my own argument, just placing that disclaimer there. But I have seen hot takes that one of the possible reasons why the church wants to uphold like the physical tradition is to accumulate money. Like that's the main way they earn. Like they don't get to earn 
from online gatherings or people worshiping in their home, they need to go to church in order to get donations, right? That's one of the main arguments that people say might be a compelling reason and interest the state, ha- the church has rather, in keeping the physical, traditional things alive. And Holy Week, actually, as I've researched, is one of the most lucrative times for the church. Like, they get a lot of offerings, they get a lot of donations during that time. They you get a lot from what what do you call that 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 service where they get money there's a there's a term for it i forgot my school will be dis- disappointed in me well same yeah it's like also for it. it's just <laughs> like donation it. yeah like you know it's like it's called hulog like maghuhulog ka lang na pera yeah yeah that that where they pass the basket around basically yeah so that that's very lucrative for the church and some people would say the church needs this time in order to you know prepare for future spending especially since the pandemic has taken a toll on the church and their ability to earn as much as possible. But again, this is also rather debatable given the fact that the church is a big institution. Some would argue they can survive without money for a while. But, you know, that that's a separate issue. So some would argue that that need is inconsistent. And speaking of inconsistencies, I guess this brings us to the last part of our discussion, which is talking about the inconsistencies of the state mandate. Like, why is it that, personally, I find this state mandate to be rather weird, given the fact that it doesn't really mesh with a lot of the different policies they put forward. So, Kalaokan Bishop David, Vice President of the CBCP, was on the side of the Manila Archdiocese and slammed Duterte for banning church gatherings while allowing gyms and spas to operate in the area now labeled as NCR+. And NCR+, is another issue altogether. We'll probably tackle that next time. But for now, all you need to know is that gyms and spas are allowed to operate in certain capacities. Fitness centers can hold up to 70% capacities under NCR+. Personal care establishments can hold up to 50% capacity. So the people are kind of questioning, like, why is it that churches are not allowed to gather even at 10% capacity? Or even if they were allowed, because uh, I'm not sure if this like mandate was shifted. From my research, it wasn't, right? But the church gathered anyway at 10% capacity. The main question became, why not to the same degree as other establishments that might not be as essential to people? Yeah, so there are many, like, there are many theories. <laughs> I mean, I can only speculate, but there might be some reasons why you allow 70% capacity for fitness centers, personal care establishments, 50%, but we don't allow you know, the church to gather. First of all, it might be, in general, easier to hold these private institutions accountable as compared to the church because, again, of that separation of church and state. There's no separation of you know, fit, fitness first, and state there's no I know, separation between those two so it might be easier to hold those institutions accountable there's also the idea that the church can survive a week of quote-unquote no normal business given the power that they already have but I, I guess another theory that I just thought of just now is maybe there's a hierarchy like we, we put a hierarchy on the goods that they produce. So fitness centers, at least they help you stay healthy, right? As well as personal care establishments, they help you, you know, care about yourself. But when you're talking about 
you know, spirituality, salvation. Those are very abstract things, like very intangible things. And I guess we don't, I mean, the state doesn't see much of a value in it as compared to like physical health. So that might be a reason why we're treating them differently. I would argue, however, that we should probably just limit activities of all establishments equally to avoid the confusion, as well as actually get stuff done during quarantine. But I agree with Kyle, because Kyle might respond to me and say that, you know, it's the government's failure that things are not going the way that they should be, and we should be allowing businesses to operate to make up for the losses established by the government. But I would still say, right, probably the solution would then be to force government action to be better by closing everything properly, actually having decent quarantine, while at the same time having ayuda, which is not the case that we see today. But that could harm businesses, I see, that might not be as powerful as the church. But I would say that if the government was able to do their job properly and actually subsidize these institutions and these establishments, then the outcome probably won't be as bad. So it's a problem-solution mismatch, I would say. We shouldn't be stopping establishments. We should be forcing governments to make accommodations for those establishments. But that's just me. My opinion about your opinion is that it sounds nice, but it, it's like a fantasy world. I don't think that it's going to happen. So I, I'm not sure if the ideal that you're talking about where we limit everyone in order to avoid the confusion get stuff done during quarantine, like pressure the government in order to do things better. I mean, that hasn't worked for the past year. I'm not sure if it's going to work anymore now. But again, you're perfectly correct in saying that it might harm those businesses that aren't as powerful as the church. Because for those businesses, they're still going to have to pay taxes, I believe, on the use of the property or they might have to pay rent. But for the church, they don't have to pay taxes on the land. Um, so that might be a difference. That Again, that might be a reason why the church can survive another few weeks of no business as opposed to smaller. So I, again, there are so many debatable issues here, The not the least of which is what is the responsibility? Like what is the burden of a religious believer um, in, in this whole situation. Because it seems like the government, again, is shifting the burden to an individual person, especially an individual believer. Is this a permissible use of state or police power to restrict religious freedoms? So I think we can end here. Um, this has been a very long week for everyone. We know like several people who have lost people. So... If you are a religious believer and you are going to pray for anything, I hope that you keep the safety of everyone in our country in your prayers because like, it doesn't seem like this nightmare is going to end pretty soon. And that's the reason why I've been kind of kinder than usual to religion in this episode because I understand that with all the mess that we're seeing in the government, I really can't fault people for trying to find a higher order. Um, and that's, I think, one of the main roles that religion has to play, that 
not even the government can take away. So that's the reason why we, we thought of making this particular episode. Um, so that's it. We hope that everyone listening to this is listening to it in a safe manner. And by that, we mean, you know, you're staying safe. Um, you can afford to stay at home. Um, we hope you and all of your family members' safety and, you know, health. That's it for this episode of Debatable. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you had a great time listening to us. It We hope that it was an escape for you a little bit as much as it was an escape for us to make this episode. Mm-hmm. So thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.